0: Luke chapter one, verses five through forty-five. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zachariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren. Both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as the priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the lord and he must not drink wine, drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the holy spirit even from his mother's womb and he will turn many of the children of israel to the lord their god and he will go before and god will go before him in a spirit and power of elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering about the delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. In the sixth month, an angel, Gabriel, was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women. And blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Merry Christmas. i uh, well, That's not the greeting you were expecting, was it? Um But it is still Christmas time. Um, John Calvin said uh, that it's uh, appropriate, beneficial uh, for us to set aside uh, a day, a year to recount the story of Christ's birth and remember um, all of the benefits that have happened in the world because Christ was born. Um, And uh, I certainly agree with him. In fact, it seems like more than one day uh, is beneficial. And so this is our, our second Sunday of Christmas time. Um, during uh, the month of December, um, we were celebrating Advent, uh, during which we were uh, thinking a lot about why we needed Jesus to come. And so we were thinking a lot about sadness and sin and frustration and frailty and futility and longing, uh, the need for hope, the need for perseverance. Um, But now during Christmas, uh, we want to focus on the things that we have because Jesus has come. Uh, The event of Jesus' birth gives us many, many things, and one very important thing that it gives us is an assurance that God is able to keep his promises, that he is willing to to keep his promises, and that he does keep his promises. The event of Christmas gives us an assurance that God is able to keep his promises, that he is willing to keep his promises, and that he does keep his promises. And Luke, in this uh, rather lengthy passage that I made you stand through, um, is uh, in, a, in a unique way uh, giving us a demonstration uh, of how the story of Christ's birth gives us that assurance. And in order to do that, uh, Luke is uh, showing us some very important things about faith. Luke is showing us two things that faith is not, and then he's showing us one thing that faith is. He's showing us two things that faith is not, and he's showing us what faith is. Um, So let me just very quickly say, you know, a note about this passage. This is, we're going to focus in, we're going to Zoom in on one very small element of a very large story. Uh, in fact, if I were, were more courageous, I would have had you stand through the whole two chapters uh, of Luke, but we would still be listening to it. It'd take, take a long time. It's long. Um, uh, but looking at Zechariah and Mary, they're two stories. You'll notice uh, a lot of parallels between the two. I think if we were if we were preaching through Luke, which, I mean, if I had to make a prediction, probably two years from now, that's what we'll be doing. Um, we might spend weeks and weeks um, on just this chapter. On, you know, we could probably easily spend three, four, five weeks on just these 45 verses. So, well, I don't want to give you the impression that I'm giving you a, a, a very thorough exposition uh, of this passage, but we're going to zoom in on one element. Um, if we look at these parallels between Zechariah and Mary, if you, in fact, if you just look at the headings throughout this chapter, the birth of John the Baptist is foretold starting in verse 5, the birth of Jesus is foretold in verse 26. In those two passages, an angel comes to each Zechariah and to Mary. He gives a promise that there's going to be a miraculous birth to each Zechariah and Mary. A physical change comes over each Zechariah and Mary that lasts about nine months until the promised baby is born. Um, each Zechariah and Mary, if you if you look forward, uh, sing a song. Mary, starting in verse 46, sings what's called the Magnificat. Zechariah in chapter in verse 67 uh, sings his prophecy. Each of these births is full, each of these promises is fulfilled. Um, and there are what we want to focus in on today uh, is one particular parallel between these two. Um, Whenever you have, I mean, look, in any story, um, but maybe especially in the Bible, whenever you have a set of parallels like this, um, and then you notice something that's a little bit different, um, that's a place to look. That's a place to look closely, uh, because often an author will make parallels like that and then have a slight difference to draw your attention to it and to, and to, to suggest that he's making a particular point there. So... Uh, one of the parallels in here is that when the angel makes this announcement to Zechariah and to Mary, they each ask a skeptical question. They each ask, how can this happen? There are physical barriers to this happening. Zechariah calls attention to the fact that he and his wife are both old and they've never had any children. His wife is past childbearing years and she never had a child when she was in childbearing years. Um, and Mary says uh, the opposite thing. I haven't even reached childbearing yet. I haven't gotten married yet. Um, some translators say that when it says, uh, she says, I have not known a man. Um, you could translate it, I have not known my husband yet. Right? We haven't gotten married yet. How can I have a baby? Uh, both Zechariah and Mary raise this objection. that This is physically impossible. This is scientifically not possible. And then the angel answers both of their questions. Zechariah asks, how will I know? And the angel tells him how he's going to know. Here's how you know. I am Gabriel, and I've come from the presence of God, and I'm taking away your voice. That's how you know. Um, and he, and he, Mary's question he answers as well and gives an explanation uh, that it's going to be the Spirit of God who is the father of this baby. Um, But there is another, there is a very key difference between these two. Uh, Gabriel says to Zechariah, because you did not believe my word, or you could translate it, because you did not have faith in what I said, um, you will be silent. And in verse uh, 45, this is why we had to read all the way to verse 45, Elizabeth says of Mary, Uh, You have believed. You have had faith. So with all of these parallels, right down to asking each of them a skeptical question, there's a key difference that Zechariah is is scolded. Zechariah is scolded for not having faith, and Mary is praised for having faith. So by drawing our attention to that, Luke is telling us something important about faith. What it is, what it is not. Alright. So what is faith not? One, first thing that faith is not. Faith is not a positive outlook. Uh, I like to call this the Disney Channel faith. I mean it's it's funny, but it's actually it's it's true and it's actually serious. Uh, Walt Disney it seems. If you if you read, there are a couple of places where Walt Disney made comments about his religious faith, and he he, he spoke in Christian-ish terms, but some of the, the specific things that he said about God seemed to be influenced by a 19th century movement called New Thought. Um, New Thought was a philosophical movement uh, that had some very particular beliefs about God and the supernatural and what faith is. Uh New thought believed that God is a uh, powerful spirit that animates the universe. Um, you can see how a Christian could say, I can assent to that, but that's not all that God is. If you reduce God to that, you you have something that's more like the Hindu idea of Brahma or the force. Right? It's impersonal. It's just a power, and it's, it's in everything. And the, And the Disney Channel... Uh, version of this is everything happens for a reason. Uh, There's energy in the universe that's going to make good things happen. Um, Another key belief of new thought was that uh, the physical world was kind of a shadow and that the spirit world was the real thing. And that's not, they were not not the first person to say that Aristotle and Plato and uh, other Greek philosophers said similar things, Hinduism says similar things, that the spirit world is what's real and the physical world is sort of a corrupt shadow. Uh, Of uh, the real spirit world. Um, This physical world is false and deceptive. Uh, The Disney Channel version of this is the advice to be who you are on the inside. Be who you are on the inside. Not your physical self, be your spirit self. That's the real you. Uh, Thinking divinely says New Thought, that thinking divinely will cause good things to happen. And this is where it gets key, okay? Uh, the Disney Channel version of this is the advice not to be negative or to remove negativity from your life. Um, is the belief that most problems are caused by negative thinking. and If you get your thinking to be positive, um, then good things will happen from it. Uh, and in line with that is the idea that positive thinking can change the physical world. Okay, so that's what New Thought is, and, and Walt Disney is actually influenced by this, it seems. Uh, and it's actually snuck into American Christianity. Um, many American religions, perhaps, but American Christianity, uh, very particularly, uh, in what is called the prosperity or the health-wealth movement or the word-of-faith movement. Um, I'm not going to name names, but you'll recognize this if you hear it. Um it teaches, this movement in Christianity teaches that faith is a moral choice that you make to say and believe positive things about yourself and your life in order to change those things. Follow that? These health, the, the health, wealth, the word of faith movement says that faith is believing positive things, not negative things. Uh, the Bible says negative things about you. I'll tell you what. The Bible says that you're a sinner. The Bible says that you need a Savior. The Bible says that uh, everything is waxing old like a garment. Um, But health wealth preachers tell you not to focus on that stuff. Focus on the positive things, the promises, the the, the good things that the Bible has to say. Repeat those to yourself and never say the negative things. So uh, never say out loud that you are sick. Never say out loud that you are poor. Never say those things. That would be negativity. That would be not faith. Faith would be to say, look, if you have a cold, you don't say I'm sick. You say I'm well. And then you'll be well. And faith is believing that you're well, even though you feel sick. All right, this this clinging to a positive outlook, it's very much influenced by new thought. And this has become a popular definition of faith in our culture. And, And Luke is showing us that this is not true. This is not the kind of faith that Mary has. And you can see that because she asks this question, how can this be? How will this be? Because I'm a virgin. A a health wealth preacher would would hear her say that, a prosperity gospel preacher would hear her say that, and would scold her and say, don't don't trot out that negativity. Stop saying, you, you say yes to what God has said. You don't ask a question like that. That's doubt. That's not faith. That's unbelief. But... She asks that question and yet is praised for having strong faith. On the Disney Channel, somebody who asked a question like that would be the character who uh, is a weak-willed person who needs to learn to believe in herself. Like, that would be her role in the story. But that's not what faith is in the Bible. You know, Gabriel doesn't scold her. Gabriel answers her question. And Elizabeth praises her and says that she's full of faith. Um, I have have actually heard it preached about this passage, uh, that the reason uh, that Gabriel takes away Zechariah's voice is because he just said negativity. So we got to keep him from talking or he could ruin this. I actually heard a preacher say that. Zechariah could ruin this if he keeps saying those negative things. So we got to shut him up. Um, But if that's the case, Mary asked just as negative a question. Why didn't he take away her voice? Right? It was not the content of what they asked. It was not asking a skeptical question that was the problem. Um, In fact, Zechariah's question, uh, if you're familiar with the Bible, uh, tell me, you know, you know, who's the a, who's a person that the Bible would tell you is, a, is an example of faith in the Old Testament? The greatest example of faith in the Old Testament, uh, many passages in the New Testament, refer to Abraham. In fact, Abraham is the person of whom the Bible says uh, he believed God, he had faith in God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Yet in uh, Genesis 15.8, in fact, you can flip there and keep your finger there because we're going to come back to it. But in Genesis 15.8, Abraham asks. Uh, God has just uh, told him that he's going to give him this land, everything that he sees. And Abraham says, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Just as Zechariah says, how am I to know that this will happen? Uh, Zechariah is repeating almost verbatim Abraham's question. So why is it Faith when it comes from Abraham, but it's negativity and God has to shut his mouth when it comes from Zechariah. The answer, you know, partially is that the question is not the problem. The negative, so-called negative statement is not the problem. So that's one thing that faith is not. Faith is not a positive, hopeful outlook. Faith is not maintaining a positive, uh, positivity in your speech. Um... But I've got to recognize that this idea that that's, that is what faith is has crept its way into American Christianity, um, and uh, you often hear, even people who aren't part of the new, uh, of the, the word faith movement or prosperity movement, uh, that idea creeps in, that somehow faith is, the, is believing things uh, that you don't have evidence for. It's a suspension of disbelief. Um, But that's not what faith is either. Faith is not a lack of critical thinking. Uh, Modern skeptics uh, offer uh, definitions of faith that are along those lines. Christopher Hitchens, famous atheist said, faith is the surrender of the mind. It's the surrender of reason. It's the surrender of the only thing that makes us different from other mammals. It's our need to believe and to surrender our skepticism and our reason, our yearning to discard that and put all our trust or faith in someone or something. That is the sinister thing to me. Of all the supposed virtues, faith must be the most overrated. And i got to tell you what, if that's what faith is, I agree with him. If faith is believing a thing that you don't have any evidence for, um, then I agree with him. Richard Dawkins said, faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith is belief in spite of, even perhaps because of, the lack of evidence. Faith is belief because of the lack of evidence, Dawkins says. And i got to say, one, I know that Christians use the term that way, and two, if if we use the term that way, I agree with Dawkins that that is a great cop-out and it's not how we should come to God. Okay, Mark Twain says, faith is believing what you know ain't so. Faith is believing something that you know isn't true. Uh, and again, if that's what faith is, I agree that that's terrible. You shouldn't believe things that you know are not true. Uh, you should not cop-out and not ask for evidence of things. Uh, Mary is praised after having asked a question like this. Okay, She asks a skeptical, a scientific question. Right? She knows how pregnancy works. She knows that you need a father for a baby. She knows that if she has never had sexual relations with her husband, She cannot have a baby. She understands the science as far as that goes. She knows that virgins can't get pregnant. She asks a question that reflects critical thinking and even a scientist's desire for an explanation. How can this happen? I have never had any relationship with a man. I'm a virgin. I have not married my husband yet. And yet, Elizabeth says that she is full of faith. Faith cannot simply be a lack of critical thinking. It cannot be a choice to believe a thing that you know is false. It cannot be a choice to cop out. There must be something else that it is. Okay, now, if you're not a Christian, especially if you think of yourself as an atheist and a skeptic, um, I imagine that you may have uh, noticed a uh, gaping hole in what I just said. Um, It's possible, uh, you know, as I just said that Mary was skeptical and thought critically, you might be saying, sure, right? She asked one time. She knows something's physically impossible and she asks, how's it going to be? And then he offers an explanation and she just accepts it. That's not a scientist. A scientist is gonna want some more proof than that. A scientist is gonna wanna see how this happens before they make a decision as to whether believe it or not. Um, A real skeptic, a real scientist, would never just take the word of some shiny person who told her that something was gonna happen that she knows is impossible. Uh, She would demand greater proof than just his word. So maybe she really is copping out and accepting a thing that she knows to be false, believing something she knows ain't so. Okay, so this is where Luke is telling us something about what faith is instead of just what it is not. The way that the Bible uses the word faith most of the time is a relational word. It's not about... uh, facts and evidence and whether you have facts or evidence or not. It's about whether you have a relationship with a person. Now, we still actually, in our language, we still use faith this way. Um, Have you ever had your boss tell you, I have faith in you? Or have you ever heard your boss say it to somebody else in front of you and you felt embarrassed because they didn't say it to you? Uh, I have faith in you. What What does a person mean? What does a boss mean when they say that to an employee? They don't mean, um, I'm going to blindly give you uh, power or responsibility that I know you can't live up to. What they're saying is, you have worked here for a while, I have seen what you are capable of, everything that I have trusted you with before, you have succeeded in, and so I'm gonna go home now and I'm gonna leave you in charge, and I have faith in you, I know you, and I trust you. All right, they're not saying that they know for sure that everything is gonna go well, but they're saying that they know that this person is going to do well. Um, one of my favorite examples of this in, uh, in recent uh, drama is John Watson and Sherlock Holmes. Uh, it's, you know, it's there in the old Sherlock Holmes stories. But it's, to me, somehow, it's on display much more potently uh, in the recent TV series, Sherlock. Uh, okay, uh, I'm going to, you know, major spoiler. At the beginning of a television show, uh, uh, season three of a television show called Sherlock, Sherlock is in it. Um, so, uh, when he's missing, and people in the previous season... Uh, saw him die, Um, John uh, is clinging or had been clinging to hope that he would still be alive. At the end of season two, when Sherlock is uh, supposedly dead, uh, John is standing over his grave. And he says this. He says, you told me once you weren't a hero. There were times I didn't even think you were human, but let me tell you this, you were the best man and the most human being that I've ever known. Catch this, no one will ever convince me that you told me a lie. He says, no one will ever convince me that you told me a lie. I was so alone and I owe you so much Oh, please, there's just one more thing, right? One more thing, one more miracle, Sherlock, for me. Don't be dead. Would you, just for me, just stop it? Stop this. You know, and this is a bit of a spoiler, but he he saw the man fall from a building, and then saw him dead on the pavement. Saw his face having fallen. But he knows Sherlock, and he trusts him. He knows what he is capable of, and he knows that Sherlock is capable of having pulled that off. And I love this line, No one will ever convince me that you told me a lie. No one will ever convince me. No one could ever present me with enough evidence or enough philosophy to make me think that you ever lied to me. Throughout the the stories, John follows Sherlock into very dangerous situations. He does what Sherlock tells him to do. Uh, Even when it contradicts what, what, uh, what John's own reason is telling him, he trusts Sherlock. Sherlock says, do this, and John goes, but, 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 and Sherlock says, you've got to do it, and he does it, and things work out, and it happens time and again, and so John trusts him, and that's faith, right? That's faith in the biblical sense. It's You, you know somebody. You have seen the evidence, and you keep believing in them, even when it's challenging. He knows Sherlock, and he trusts him, and this is what's driving Mary. She knows God, and she trusts him. That is her faith. Okay? So the angel tells her something that contradicts everything she knows with her reason about pregnancy. And she asks the skeptical question, and he gives her an explanation, and she goes, that's crazy, but let it happen to me according to your word because I know God, and I trust him, and I can tell that you are from him. I can tell. Right, it's a relational thing. Okay. Uh, so, if you've ever, uh, if you, if you are a skeptic or you're uh, um, an unbeliever of some kind, you're not a Christian. Um, you got to understand that this is what Christians have with Jesus. And if you've ever argued with a with a Christian, and you've ever tried to use logic, reason, philosophy. Uh, to try to uh, relieve a Christian of their delusional belief in Jesus, um, you may have run up against this. You may have run up against the exact attitude that John Watson says about Sherlock. No one will ever convince me. Uh, You may have heard a Christian say that to you. You are never going to be able to convince me that Jesus isn't real and loves me. I just know him. Uh, and I, look, that's got to be really frustrating, because from your point of view, you're using all of the tools that you have, uh, and you're being very reasonable, and that Christian doesn't know their philosophy, they don't know the evidence, they don't, they don't know uh, how to tell you, uh, you know, that we know with, you know, a high degree of certainty that the Gospels contain eyewitness reports of Christ's resurrection. They don't know how to make those explanations to you, but they know Jesus. Uh, I suspect that's very frustrating, and I'm sympathetic. Um, Let me ask you to be a little sympathetic, too, if that's you. Um, Because what you've become in that moment, from the Christian's point of view, is you've become (laughs) like the one little kid (laughs) who's being a real turd and trying to convince another little kid that his mother doesn't love him. Now, you ever have, like, you ever witnessed that as a child? You know, your mom doesn't love you, your mom doesn't love you. And like the one little kid is like, yes, she does, I know she does. And he's like, well, if she loved you, she'd do this. You're like, I don't know what to say. But I know that my mom loves me. Like, you're not going to, as the bully in that situation, you're going to have a hard time actually convincing that kid that his mother doesn't love him. He's, he can't answer your, your objections, uh, he doesn't have the philosophical training. <laughs> he's a little kid. Um, And, you know, I want, you know, uh, as a Christian, I want to have, uh, you know, the understanding of the evidence, and I want to be able to, to, uh, you know, respond to your logical arguments. But I can't always. But even when I can't, God, I gotta tell you, I know him. You're never going to be able to convince me that he's ever lied to me. Now, if you are not a Christian and you've been in that situation, your response to me is probably, at least if you're not saying it out loud, your thought is probably, I'm delusional. I can say with such a degree of certainty that I know this invisible person that I've never actually seen with my eyes or heard with my ears. I know them. Okay. I, look, I respect that. But let me just suggest this. Um, From a mental health point of view, uh, delusionality never exists alone. Neurosis never exists in isolation. Uh, If a person is delusional, there's going to be other uh, symptoms, there's going to be other problems. Um, And so maybe that's the the thing that I'm asking you to consider is, is the person that you're talking to, do they have other symptoms of being mentally ill? and I hope that that doesn't just leave us at an impasse. And the other question I wanna ask you to consider is, is this not, is it really not a valid way to relate to the world? Is this sort of relational faith really not valid? Because if we if we have to continue to re-examine the evidence uh, for putting our faith in the people around us, we could not, uh, exist as a societal species, we could not survive as a species. We couldn't ever get married. We couldn't ever have a friend. You could never hire a babysitter. You couldn't ever uh, sit down to eat with people because they didn't try to kill me yesterday, my family, but maybe they will today. Uh, but this kind of relational faith is necessary for being human. That's what Mary has. And it's what Zechariah should have had, but did not. That is why Gabriel criticizes him, scolds him for not having faith. Zechariah has the scriptures. He has the history of his people. He has the knowledge of how time and again God saved them and did amazing things for them. Zechariah is a priest. He should know this stuff better than anybody. He is standing in the holy place of the temple when this happens. And I love that Gabriel says, your prayer has been answered. And your wife is going to have a child. This is something that he's been praying for for decades. Maybe he was praying it right then as he's offering the incense. And the angel appears and says, Your prayer is answered. Zechariah should know what God is capable of. And I asked you to keep your finger in Genesis 15. I said, We're going to look at that real quick, one last time. Okay? Because. When Abraham asks this question, the same question that Zechariah asks, how will I know? The context is this. God has just said to him, uh, Abram says to God in verse 2, Lord God, what will you give me for I continue childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. uh, Down in verse 8 is where he says, how am I to know that I shall possess it, this land? And God answers him by telling him, uh, if you you look down there, he tells him particular animals to gather and to to kill them and to cut them in two. And here Abraham is beginning a ritual that he would understand in his culture. um, When a powerful person made a promise uh, with a less powerful person, where the less powerful person was promising to serve the more powerful person, they would do this. They They would divide animals in half. And they would uh, walk between them. And what they were saying was, "Let let this happen to me if I don't fulfill my vow to you, more powerful, you know, greater king, great king, and I'm this lesser king. If I don't keep my promise to serve you, let this happen to me. Okay. And when the sun had gone down, verse 17... And it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between those pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. This view of God being the one passing through the animals, saying, I'm putting my life on the line. How will you know? How will you know that I will do this? Because I'm telling you that if I don't do it, the curse is on me Zechariah knows this and he says to your offspring i will give this land Zechariah knows and understands that when the angel says that your son is going to turn the hearts of the children back to of the hearts of the children of Israel back to their god and that he will walk in the spirit of elijah Zechariah knows the prophecies, that this is claiming to be the fulfillment of, that this is all about the restoration of the people of God. Zechariah knows that this is, in fact, the culmination of the promise that God made to Abraham there, saying that the curse will be on me if I don't keep my promise. Zechariah knows. He should know. He has every reason to trust. God offers his own life as the guarantee of the promise. And Zechariah knows that this is who God is. And that is the faith that he does not have. Finally, I want to tell you something that faith gives us. That sort of relational trust gives us assurance that God is able and willing to keep His promises. Because watch this. Zechariah blows it. You know, uh, you know, this this flies in the face of what the prosperity gospel folks will say. Zechariah fails. He does not trust. But look at what Gabriel says, verse 18. Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you to bring you this good news and behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Now watch this. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Which will be fulfilled fulfilled in their time. The God who walked between those pieces of of slain animals saying, this is what will happen to me. The curse will be on me if I fail. I will not fail to keep my promise. That God says these words will be fulfilled in their time and their time is coming. Zechariah's failure doesn't tie God's hands. Mary's Faith doesn't loose God's hands. God is doing what he has been planning to do, what he has been working toward throughout history since the beginning of the creation of the world. And contrary to the New Thought movement and the Disney Channel and those prosperity preachers, God's power is not held captive by your positive outlook or lack thereof. He's not even held captive by your lack of faith. He will do what he has promised. Because of the birth of Jesus, because of Christmas, we can know, even more surely than Mary did, and even more surely than than Zechariah ought to have, that God is faithful. He has now demonstrated his commitment to us by becoming one of us. And when he promised that the curse would fall on him if the covenant failed. The covenant did fail, but not because of him. The people of Israel failed in their end of that uh, bargain to be faithful to their God. And the curse does fall. And when it falls, it falls on God himself. This baby that was born was born to go to the cross. He was born to bear the curse of that covenant. That animal that was divided in half became him. He was slain for us, and he was raised for us. According to the scriptures and according to history, he was raised for us. And he offers himself to us and for us here at this table.